Hi, this is James Daum. I'm uh, being brought to you today by uh, Dave Lee's channel. Uh, we're doing an impromptu uh, chat about some recent developments in FSD stuff. And the topics we're going to cover today are the Starlink announcement with T-Mobile last night, um, the um, release notes for 10.69. And we're going to talk a little bit about uh, Ashok Ilaswamy's uh, CVPR talk. Awesome. Yeah, thanks, um, everyone, for joining in. I asked James to do the intro because I'm actually in my car near Mount Rushmore and it's kind of hard to handle all of the recording and the note taking or just viewing the notes and everything. So thanks, James. Um, yeah, this is awesome, man. I can't, I wanted to uh, talk to you actually about uh, Starlink because I thought that was an awesome announcement last night. But before yeah. we do that, um, uh, the big news this past week, Tesla stock split three to one. How does it feel having three times the the Tesla shares that you had just a few days ago. I, I it when when it was five times, you know, I was looking forward to ten or twenty. Like that would have been great. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we're not getting to ten or twenty, so three is good. That's good. Yeah. Stock splits are, you know, they're happy making things. It's easier. It's certainly a lot easier to uh, uh, to get family members, you know, excited about buying something where they don't have to sell a car to get a share, right? <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, uh, Tesla stocks with, um, yeah, it feels, um, I don't know, it's going to take me a few days to get used to those numbers because I have to mm. like, translate it times three, you know, mm. um, to see what yeah. the stock price was before. But I'm sure yeah. after, by next week, I'm sure everyone will, will be totally fine with the, the new uh, stock yeah. price. Um, I had to go through all my spreadsheets and all my models and whatnot and change all the formulas. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't done the big models yet, so those are going to be a hassle because it's the, the numbers are all in you know Python code scattered around. But yeah, we'll see. Got it. Um, so Starlink uh, T-Mobile announcement. So last night, um, Elon was um, previewing it, saying it's going to be a big announcement. I thought it was going to be something like just improving T-Mobile's like cell towers, you know, especially in remote areas where they would add a Starlink okay. connection, make better, like, add new towers where they didn't have towers, just improve it. But this totally, you know, yes, sideswiped me or blind spot. Well, like, just I'm like super surprised. Yeah. I was sure that backhaul was going to be the thing because yeah. I, backhaul for covering for, you know, for filling in the gaps mm -hmm. uh, is such a, an important thing. And as a lot of people have said, you know, te Tesla's got solar panels, they got power walls, you know, you could build a cell tower in a box and slap a Starlink antenna on it. And you could put like conventional cell towers just like exactly. in the middle of nowhere, yeah. drop them from a helicopter, you know, lower mm -hmm. them on a mountaintop, bolt them down. Um, and I was expecting some, you know, clever, innovative, uh, aggressive thing along those lines. And what we got was completely different. Like I wasn't expecting exactly. cell towers, regular cell phones to satellites. That's hard to do. Like that was not on my bingo card. Yeah. Definitely. I mean, it just feel like it, it's, it skipped a couple, I don't say generations or technologies yeah. where it's like, forget the cell towers, go directly to the satellite. So I wanted to ask you like, yeah, what do you know about this? How difficult is it to, you know, for a satellite in low Earth orbit to actually connect to a yeah, cell phone. Well, yeah. yeah. 500 miles, 500 yeah, kilometers. True. Yeah. Um, so, but what what are some of the challenges, you know, that you think Starlink is having to overcome here? Uh, well, it, I mean, the, the uh, cell phones are not designed to talk to a tower 500 miles away. They're just not, right? I and mean, usually when you build a communication system, you split the load as much as you can between the two different ends of the communication system, right? So if you want to talk a long way, 
you know, you split the burden of the antenna and the power and the processing sophistication kind of between the two ends. And that kind of makes the, the system sort of more tractable to do. But now we have these cell phones that are designed to talk to cell towers, you know, that are maybe a few miles away, maybe 15 miles away or something like that. Mm -hmm. And they have, you know, a few hundred milliwatts of transmit power and they have decent, um, they have pretty sophisticated processing for modulation techniques and that kind of stuff, but they don't have, uh, they don't have nearly the level of, of sort of dealing with artifacts and stuff that you might want when you're dealing with an antenna that's like 500 miles away and is moving really, really fast. Mm -hmm. So the satellite has to take on all that burden, right? Which is why they're putting like a five meter antenna mm -hmm. on the satellite just for dealing with this. And and even then, they, they're only going to get, I think, you know, Elon said two, two to four megabits or one to two megabits. Yeah, two to four one megabits, to yeah. Yeah, two to four megabits in a cell. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's just really, really hard. But the flip side is any amount, I mean, you know, text messages are small. Messaging is super, super low bandwidth. So, like, any amount of connectivity that you can get to these places where there's just none at all right now is incredibly useful to people. Right. So it, it's this interesting place. They have to throw a lot of technology and a lot of expense at being able to provide incredibly, you know, what we're used to today, because, you know, cell phones are fast and the Internet is fast. And what seems like a really small amount of of, of uh, communication ability, but it's so useful if you're in the middle of yeah. nowhere, if you have an emergency. Uh, you know, or you're just, you know, on a cruise ship someplace and, uh, you know, even being able to carry on a text message conversation is way better than, than not having any contact at all for an extended period of time. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, um, I've been following kind of the satellite phone, uh, trends for the past few decades. I remember in my twenties, I was traveling to all these different countries and I carried like a sat phone just to be able to make calls and stuff. But I think before this, like Ir Iridium, the satellite network was probably the, the, I don't want to say the only option, but the best option to just do emergency text call, text messaging when you're like hiking somewhere or mountain climbing somewhere. Mm -hmm. But it's extremely expensive. You know, you have to have a separate device. Um, it's just mm -hmm. impractical for almost anyone to really, you know, buy that stuff unless you're a professional like expedition person. Um, but this opens up kind of like basically emergency text, emergency calling to almost yeah. anyone, anywhere. It just is a huge yeah. no, jump. In emergencies, uh, it, you know, when, if you, when you have a natural disaster to have like a, a minimal backup that's guaranteed to work for the cell system, man, that is so incredibly, I, this is, this is going to profoundly change, you know, emergency services in the world when, when it gets distributed, because the assumption that you can just reach people is, is, is just different, right? I mean, here, here's the thing, right? Apple, what this thing has a cell transceiver in it, right? Mm -hmm. It's like all these people who've got who have got the version of the Apple Watch that has a cell phone in it. You are never, ever, ever going to be out of contact, right? Yeah. If you got your watch on in an emergency, no matter where you are on Earth, you know. And and Apple, they have the features on the thing where, like, you know, if you have an accident, if you fall down, the watch can detect it and automatically call for help, right? Like that's just totally next generation level of sort of accident preparedness, you know, for the communication system. Yeah. Yeah. So um, in terms of like how they're doing it, it seems like they're just using the, like some current cell phone band bandwidth. Yeah. Right. Um, and then uh, it seems like the heavy lifting is all done by Starlink, right? The, the satellite yeah. where it's going to, you know, basically broadcast or listen in and, and uh, some, 
or send out everything to the yeah. cell phones. So, um, yeah, I mean, I'm guessing what what's your take on the partnership with T-Mobile? Are they doing that because Starlink isn't commissioned to 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 be a cell phone provider, so they need to work with an existing, you think, cell phone? Uh- Probably the most important, I mean, certainly like billing and that kind of stuff, handling that thing, like having a partner that's already got all the infrastructure is a good thing. I don't know, maybe that, uh, that, you know, that SpaceX wants to go into the cell phone business, right? Mm. Which is why I thought backhaul was the natural fit for them. But, um, they need a chunk of piece. They need a chunk of spectrum that they can access. And ideally you'd like contiguous spectrum, where you know a lot of the a lot of cellular bands are broken up regionally in the United States, so that you know a provider they have this frequency here and that frequency there, other frequency over here, to make the first version as reasonable as possible. If you had like a band that some cellular provider owned, like over a really large area, ideally over the United States, because that's a good place to start to to start your service, and that so. Uh, T-Mobile has a PCS band, which is, so PCS is the set of frequencies between 1850 and 1990 or something megahertz. It, it's the, it was the first digital cell phone band, but uh, I think it stands for, it, the FCC brands them as personal communication system mm-hmm. frequencies. It's a good band to use for this kind of, of stuff, just like its physical characteristics are good. And T-Mobile has a slice of that, that, that where they have 100% coverage everywhere in the US. So by partnering with T-Mobile, one thing Tesla, or sorry, Tesla, one thing that SpaceX gets is they get it, you know, for their first go, they get a single frequency that they can just use everywhere. Got it. Interesting. Do you think um, uh, Verizon, AT&T will, will join in somehow on this? Or do you think for the time being, it'll just be a T-Mobile thing with uh, SpaceX? Uh, it, I mean, the way that, that they were talking about it last night, I get the impression that, uh, you know, SpaceX is not going to be excited about the idea of trying to do a single carrier, you know, to provide exclusivity. That's obviously attractive from the carrier end of things, right? But, uh, and, and traditionally, that's what you'd expect carriers to do. You'd expect a carrier to want to get something that they could lock other carriers out of to, to make for an upsell. Because I can tell you, yeah. man, you know, if AT&T doesn't do it, I'm moving to T-Mobile. Yeah. Right? I really... It's it to me. This is like it's a very significant feature to have, you know, emergency connectivity. Even though I'm never going to use it, but to me, it's kind. Of, it's uh-huh. like it's like having a hospital, mm-hmm. like in the town I live in. Like I don't intend to use it, but I want it there. Yeah, <laughs> right. so, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. It, it, I think a partnership is is a great way to go, and I think yeah. other carriers will probably be persuaded. And in the short run, there's a there there could be this technical limitation of how many different frequencies and how frequency agile the satellite is and mm-hmm. how big the cell sizes are. And like, I haven't actually looked at the frequency maps. Mm-hmm. I think they're mostly regional. Like there are places where, you know, different different providers uh, own different chunks of, of, uh, of spectrum in like metropolitan area size chunks. And that could be tough for, for Starlink, because at least right now the cells are like 15 miles across, mm. so they can't distinguish things that are smaller than that. Yeah, yeah. It reminds me back in the day when uh, the iPhone launched, and it was just AT and T exclusive, um, and AT and T got all this marketing benefit of being the only carrier mm. with iPhone, and you know Apple got you know a cut of all that, and it worked out. But I mean, it probably lasted a bit too long. But I would imagine like the T-Mobile partnership, maybe there's a time limit, like three years 
or five years or something where it could be exclusive. And then it opens up where, you know, SpaceX has partnerships with, you know, AT&T and Verizon after, you know, a few years. But we'll I see. I, the, the, the way they were talking that the T-Mobile CEO was talking about last night, it, mm. it kind of sounds like there's no exclusivity uh, like contractual exclusivity and, yeah. and I don't, his, his, uh, approach of wanting to, to use it as, uh, as kind of a, a way to get to mutual roaming agreements to like, you yeah. know, that like the, the pull for T-Mobile would be to get cross roaming agreements, especially overseas. Cause mm-hmm. you know, one of the things that T-Mobile has that other carriers don't really have right now is they give you kind of free international roaming. Like that's a seller for them. Yeah. And I, I suspect they like a they attract a significant number of, of customers whom that's important to, because I mean, you, I don't know if you use AT&T or Verizon, but you travel internationally, you get robbed. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, if you care about the cost of those yeah. services, yeah, I think so, yeah, I think uh, Verizon's like a hundred hundred dollars a month just to go international roaming with your data, and they only give you five gigabytes or something. T-Mobile just gives it, I think, for free. Right, it's pretty yeah. expensive on eight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm actually headed to Mexico maybe in a few weeks. Um, I want to take my kids to Mexico City to check it out. Uh, <laughs> should be fun. Wow. Um, yeah. So. Um, um, when the T-Mobile announcement happened, I was like, you know, if it if a phone can connect to um, a satellite, Starlink satellite, then surely a Tesla car could do that too. Because aren't they just sure. basically putting a phone or the the components right into yeah, yeah. a Tesla? No, the existing right? cars, cellular remote, uh, you know, antenna and all that stuff. So I'm like, yeah, this is probably going to happen. So and then Elon confirmed that, you know, by replying saying yes. Yeah. But do you think? So you're thinking that the current Tesla cars will be able to to handle? Do they, do they have the right spe- oh, yeah. spectrum? No, okay. it's, I mean, if you, if you have, uh, you know, a cell phone, I mean, he, they didn't say what modulation scheme they were going to go with. So we don't know if it's like two, three, four G, whatever, mm. uh, that, that they're doing. It may, you know, it would be interesting to know that, but, uh, you know, uh, they did say something along the lines of like any phone manufactured in the last few years or whatnot. So maybe it's a three G modulation scheme that they're using so and, you know and 3g may, maybe not because 3g is getting got you know it's getting eliminated in mm-hmm. terrestrial networks right now but uh i would guess that you know if you mm-hmm. it, that if you, uh, certainly if you have a, a recent model it's yeah. got a cellular transceiver in it right? exactly yeah yeah i mean to me that's a that's a decent selling point actually you know wherever your tesla is you're always going to be able to call or text for emergency. Yeah. But, you know, um, OnStar will have this too. Other car mm-hmm. carriers, like anybody, any car carrier mm-hmm. that wants to use that feature, they can they can do it. Okay. Would they connect with T-Mobile or, I mean, because if T-Mobile has that agreement, I mean. Well, if, yeah. It, I, yeah, I mean, they would need to have a contract okay. with a carrier that had a contract with Got six, it. Got six it. Six, right. Because they, they have to be able to communicate on the frequency that the satellites are able to use yeah. and whoever owns that band of frequency, they have to both cut a deal with, with uh, mm-hmm. SpaceX and cut a deal with, you know, whoever the end customer is mm-hmm. that that's going to use it. So right now, if that's T-Mobile, then yeah, you know, if mm-hmm. T-Mobile is the only carrier who's got a piece of spectrum that Starlink is allowed to use, then to get access to that spectrum, you have to get T-Mobile's permission. So normally you'd get a contract with T-Mobile. Yeah. All right. So I want to go into uh, Tesla FSD beta 10.69. So I wanted to talk with you about this because my general sense is that 
you know, most people aren't understanding like what's improving in 10.69 um, mm. and how significant some of the improvements are. And so let's take a step back and um, um, approach it through different ways. So I, was, I wanted to ask you about Chuck Cook's uh, unprotected left turns, maybe go into um, Ashok's presentation, who's the head of autopilot, who gave a recent presentation, um, and then also go into the release notes to kind of decode for the people out there, like exactly what the improvements are. But first to Chuck Cook's um, unprotected left turns. Have you, did you see any of his recent uh, videos with 10.6? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. What, st what struck me personally was like some of the, the, the movements into the median and then from the medium out, they were just like, I mean, this is night and day compared to six yeah. months ago, you know? I mean, it's, it's a completely different you know, beast. That you know, the, I've been watching Chuck's yeah. left turn videos from, from back from, you know, since he, start, since he mm -hmm. started doing them. And I have, yeah. you know, I've thought a lot about like what, what you know, what things have to get better. Yeah. Yeah. The, Cause it, it was never like one thing it's because, mm -hmm. you know, being able to make a left turn, it's built on other fundamental exactly. capabilities, right? Being able to predict things, being able to sense things, you know, being able to do planning of a certain level of complexity with certain features in it. And, uh, and I was, you know, I was watching, I was ex not expecting them to like get Chuck's turn in this time. Frame. Yeah. Like yeah. That, it's an, it's an impressive. Yeah. I, I mean, forward. I mean, when I was a lot like, of things, got a lot yeah, exactly. I'm not like, you know, you know, um, completely like, you know, technical understanding everything. But when I looked at those turns, I'm like, I don't think most people are getting how complex it is to yeah. be able to do this. Like you have to basically, you know, be really accurate with all the lanes, with all the objects, with all the velocities, you know, you need to have predictions, you know, of where everything's going to be mm -hmm. at, you know, and if anything is off, you know, like it could be extremely dangerous. You can yeah. basically get killed. And it's um, important. It's, they didn't solve Chuck's turn. They solve yeah, the Chuck's style turns, right? It's to solve mm -hmm. that whole category. Exactly, of turns, yeah. There's a bunch of things because, like on Chuck's turn, the visibility it's not great, but it's not terrible. But there are mm -hmm. other turns that are really similar to that and have much worse visibility. And the visibility is bad for different reasons, depending on how the road is approaching you, yeah, and what the lighting is, what the foliage is on both sides, whether or not their buildings casting shadows and that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, your the effective visibility you have changes, and occlusions are super important, right? Near yeah. field occlusions, poles mailboxes, trees that are in the foreground that you have to, like Chuck's turn kind of demonstrates this, this class of things where there are, you know, parked cars or something near you and you have to look through them or look behind them and sort of, and sort of understand the traffic flow that you're seeing through the gaps in these things that are blocking exactly. your field of view. And that is not a simple problem to solve in a general way like for any given turn you can sit down and write some code and say here's a here's a good way to do it in this situation but and this is actually something that Ashok mentioned in his talk which mm -hmm. I didn't get until I went back and looked at it a second time that they uh, they that they I mean my sense he doesn't say explicitly what they're doing but he talks about reasoning about occlusions so instead of like if you were, you wouldn't talk about it in, you wouldn't say reasoning about occlusions. If you, if, if the approach the company was taking was on a case by case basis, you know, like a, a routine for, if I have one tree in the foreground, if I have a bush in the foreground, here's a routine for if there are cars in the foreground, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. You really want something that has a sense of the fields of visibility and what that's doing in a general way to your ability to ascertain the flow of traffic. And, and then the reasoning part is, is if it's not good enough, like 
you know, to what degree can you see things? And if you yeah. can't see things to the degree you need to, like what needs to change to make it better? And what do you need to do to to move forward, to move backwards, left, right? Do you have to inch out into traffic? Or, you know, is this one of those ones where you just say, uh, tell the driver, I, I can't do this, right? I'm not going to. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it reminds me a bit about um, when we were driving, I think this was back in the summer, last summer, um, when we met up um, near Corona or something. And, and we, after driving about an hour, we stopped and you were sharing this in, this idea. I, I still remember where you're saying, you know, Tesla could make it a lot, feel a lot better in a lot of situations by just increasing the aggressiveness, right, of, of the driving. Mm -hmm. um, but then that would make it less safe in certain situations because it, it wouldn't be, it's just doing it because it's, it's forcing it to do it in a way. Um, but when I look at Chuck's turn, it's not simp a simple matter where you just increase the aggressiveness because that is a super dangerous situation. If you just increase the aggressiveness, you have some crazy crashes and you know repercussions. Yeah. What they've done is it's not, and it's not just a simple thing where they're just hacking it just for Chuck's turn, that just that one specific turn. They're actually having to make like, you know, probably just so many fundamental improvements in in how it perceives, you know, everything, the movements, predictions, the space and everything just to be able to make that. And I think that's the missing story with what's going on with FSD is how much Tesla in just the past year has improved so many things about, you know, the neural networks and their approaches. Um, yeah, what's your kind of take on kind of some of that stuff? Yeah, it's a lot of, I, it, there's this thing that that I'd always looked at Chuck's turn as, as so, um, when you, when you, you, you know, your perceptions are in camera play at mm -hmm. camera plane, right? That's, that's what you see. Mm -hmm. We, you see, you know, this and your brain has to flip that into like, if you're looking, when you look at a median that's out on a road, especially if the road is rising against you from your perspective, you're kind of looking at the median edge on. So how wide is that median? Right? Mm -hmm. Is it four feet wide or exactly. is it eight feet wide? Cause it's four feet wide. You can't stop there. You know, it's not big enough for you to do the median trick. If it's eight feet wide, you can. Well, in the visual plane, like what's the difference between seeing a four foot wide? Well, you're looking at it edge on. You yeah. got to be super accurate in terms of your sense of the space to be able to tell looking at the edge of a median if it's a four foot stop or an eight foot stop. And this is this was a fundamental thing that I thought in particular about Chuck's turn, mm -hmm. right? is that it it wasn't it, it it's not like the lane markings make it super clear it's a median in the general case mm -hmm. i mean certainly if you know if you live where chuck lives and you drive those things all the time you know how they mark the roads there but in the general case right as mm -hmm. i look at those and it's not clear to me that that's a median that's intended for people to stop at and if it's not marked that way you have to sense the geometry accurately enough that you can make a prediction about that kind of stuff. And this is, in his case, it's not even a median where you can drive out. <laughs> and if you're clunky, like if you don't get the position right, it's yeah. okay. Yeah. It's not that big. It's right on the edge, right? So you would expect it to be one of those things where, you know, if the if the neural network wasn't doing a really good job of having the shape of the road and the geometry of that space, that it would guess wrong a significant amount of the time. And guessing wrong is bad in that kind of situation because high-speed traffic and, and a smooth flow kind of situation. You know, yeah. you don't have a lot of time to get up to speed. And I mean, 
you know, high speed traffic is hurting you two ways. One is the collision consequences are really high. So it makes you want to be more conservative. But the other one is you also have less time to react. And when you do move, you have to commit, right? Because you have yeah. to get up to speed relatively quickly. And it seems like they just, they got the perception thing down. They got the commitment thing down. Mm -hmm. They dealt with the occlusions at the edge of the road and being yeah. able to reason about occlusions and visibility. And the, all of those things seem like just fundamentally significant improvements to the to to the system. And and I, a lot of it, I think, is explainable mm -hmm. by the stuff that yeah. that Ashok talked about in in his CVPR talk, where he he talked he yeah. talked about moving to. Actually, I thought that one of the most interesting Actually, sort of hold you know, hold off on Ashok's yeah. talk for a second. I want to talk about uh -huh. just uh, Chuck's turn one more one more thing, and then we'll go into Ashok's thing. But uh -huh. with Chuck's uh, turn thing, also what struck me is um. Like if you're looking on into the oncoming traffic and if you're wrong about the lanes that the cars are in, for example, mm -hmm. you think that the car is in the nearest lane to you, but it's actually in the farthest lane, closest to the median, and you're going, that could be a big mistake because the car can hit you quicker because it's in the lane that's closest to the median. Yeah. So you have to be really accurate on which lane the car is in too, right? How fast Just it's going. Just knowing there are three lanes on the other exactly. side is really hard yeah. to do. Yeah, I mean, you can't, you can mm -hmm. see three lanes on the near side of the mm -hmm. median, but you can't assume that means there are three on the other side. If you think there are three and there are actually two, then, mm -hmm. then you know, then you automatically have less space to, to, exactly. to, you know, merge safely into traffic than you think you're going to. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, I think it's hard for humans to know actually which car is in which lane sometimes, you know, especially if there's yeah, like yeah. all these cars coming. Turn. Yeah, yeah. I, I totally <laughs> wouldn't do that. <laughs> exactly. Um, and then, so on, on this other uh, kind of idea of occlusions, you know, if there's like a pole or something where you can't see, or it's like showing no car, right, for, for a little bit because there's occlusion, mm. um, that's dangerous too. Because if you go because you think there's no car, but there's a car, then it's like, it's a death trap sense. So it's like, it seems like, you know, Tesla has built the foundations where they've moved everything, I would say everything, but pretty much almost everything to video now, where it's no longer just um, analyzing just the images alone, but it's in context of video. And then they've added on this whole prediction kind of probably um, engine or approach where they're able to know, you know, and predict where the objects are going to be um, later mm -hmm. on in the future, um, including kind of, um, uh, taking into consideration all the occlusions as well, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, temporary yeah, so, they, yeah, exactly. they dealt with temporary occlusion. Yeah, and so, they've integrated, I mean, that was, you know, we knew that they were integrating across time, but we didn't yeah. know, you know, how good it was working for them and what parts of the system it was working in. Um, and, you know, it seems, and there are implications, once again, from in Ashok's talk that kind yeah. of bring this stuff together. But generally, a thing that makes me happy, mm -hmm. generally, it, you know, there's the the whole you know uh, you know uh, two steps forward one step back kind of thing where mm -hmm. and I've explained it in the past is like you know sometimes you discover that the way you're doing something isn't getting you there yeah. and you need to make some pretty basic changes to the system to open up new possibilities for ways of solving problems and when you do that you're tearing out some stuff that you've had for a while and it's complicated it touches a lot of things and so you get all these bugs and then and that's the one step backwards kind of thing mm -hmm. right is that something that was working before now isn't working because you've injected bugs into something that was previously mature but you've laid the foundation for being able to do something that what that you were uh, being able to take a new approach to solving some aspect some problem 
that you just weren't making progress on in, in the old approach. And I feel like they, they did that in a very significant way mm-hmm. here because they, they previously kind of had separate perception systems for moving objects and static objects. Mm-hmm. And they've, they're kind of moved, they've stopped doing that. They've unified the thing, which, I, which that's a big simplification. It's a conceptual simplification and unification of the perceptions of, of the system. It eliminates optimization they had before because static objects, you don't have to think about as much because you just assume they're not going to move. So in a sense, it's an optimization to break your system into two pieces and say, mm. I only need to check on these once in a while because they're not going to move. But there are these other things I need to pay more attention to. So I'm going to, you know, so I'm going to, you know, die, I'm going to spend more code and do more sophisticated processing on those kinds of things. But then, you know, whether you put things in the right category, you know, <laughs> can really bite you. Uh, you you know, you can have all these problems with it. And I'd always really worried about the fact that they had these two split and they're getting rid of the split. They're just like, we're not doing that anymore. Everything's a thing and we're putting it all in one bucket. And we don't have those. We're not going to have the complexity that, that, you know, and the weird problems that will manifest from getting things in the wrong categories or not being able to recognize things. Like if you can't recognize something, what is it, What category does it go in? Right. Is is a big problem in that situation. Yeah. And they've gotten that. away from that. And so that's the kind of thing where you know, the potential for the big step backwards where all kinds of things that worked before mm-hmm. are now going to manifest new problems that people with experience with the system haven't seen before. But the flip side is there's all these problems that they're probably having and, or that they would have in the future that they're just not going to have because they've taken a conceptually much more straightforward approach to dealing so, with it. So do you think that's one of the reasons why they're doing 10.69 just for limited and then 10.69.1 for more and then more wider release for the next release. It's it's, it's big changes. These mm-hmm. are big changes to the system. So yeah, I think you know the risk that there's some really horrible bug mm-hmm. yeah. hiding in there that they just haven't got enough miles to discover yet is too high for them to just give it, it to a ton of people and, yeah. and turn it loose. You definitely, you know, gonna wanna you know baby step this thing out into the world. Yeah. So um, with Ash- Ashok's presentation, so. Um, he uh, spoke, I think it was last week, and there's a YouTube uh, video on that. I'll try to link it in the video description if I remember. Um, but yeah, it was a great talk. Um, could you kind of uh, share kind of the, the layperson overview on what's significant um, about his talk? What can we learn about what Tesla is doing right now in terms of their neural networks and their approach you know, to self-driving? Um, you know, where are they at and you know, kind of what's the bigger picture here? Yeah, so uh, it you know it's another uh, recruiting kind of event. So there, you know, Tesla's not going there doing the big reveal and showing us everything that they're that they're doing. Uh, they're you know dribbling out some technical details that are going to be interesting to the audience that whose interests they want to pique, and you know, and we get to sit on the sidelines, not being the audience that they're trying to recruit, mm-hmm. and sort of get to you know see some new. stuff some stuff that they haven't that that they haven't shown before, and there were like from a technical perspective, there were a lot of really sort of interesting things to to me in in the talk. Uh, the I, the place I was going with the anecdote before before I ran on was he has he has this uh, this phrase about geometry is greater than ontology, and uh, which is uh, so. Ontology is putting stuff in categories, right? Like making sense of the world by figuring out, by recognizing things and putting them in boxes. And 
Uh, and that is a pretty good way of describing what a lot of self-driving, a lot of the underlying tech, you know, one of the, one of the things that, ne that neural networks are good at is like, you know, it, you know, I have my dog cat, you know, mm. example that yeah. I've talked about a bunch of times. Is this a picture of a dog, picture of a cat? That's a classification thing. And a ton of the underlying core tech, I mean, classification was one of the first problems people tackled with works when they started applying neural networks to cars. You know, classification was a natural place to go. It was something that was kind of understood how the technology worked in that kind of in, in that way. And so they did a lot of classification. Right. Is this a stop sign? Is this stoplight red or green? Um, you know. Is this a curb? Is this a curb? Is this a curb? Um, is this drivable space or not drivable space? Those are all classification decisions, right? This is they were, you know, they're, the perception of the world was heavily dominated by classifying objects and delineating their boundaries and then trying to make decisions that way. Mm -hmm. That breaks in, in ways. It's very useful in lots of ways. Like knowing something is, say, a pedestrian as opposed to a light pole, you know, they're both just things in space. But when you, you know, when you want to predict what, you know, what things are going to do, recognizing what they are is super useful. So you don't want to get rid of classification. That's really important. But there, there, there are aspects of this problem of being in the world, maneuvering in the world where you just need geometry. You need to know, you know, what's, you know, what space is occupied by something and what space isn't occupied by stuff. That's the occupancy map, yeah. right? Yeah. And they're, they're, they're shifting a significant amount of work into determining this occupancy thing. And so Ashok spent some time talking about giving some examples of how they're doing occupancy, how they're building this 3D map of the world around them yeah. to understand what's empty space and what has stuff, what points have stuff in it. And there are things that you can get out of that that really help you sort of understand the situation and perception in a basic way. He did detail, and not enough detail, not as much as I would like, but he talked some about how they're doing occupancy and how it affects what they're doing. But like to me, from a lay audience standpoint, the big takeaway is they're putting a lot more effort into understanding the geometry of a system and using that to their advantage. And they're relying less on their ability to accurately classify all the different mm -hmm. things that they see. Interesting. So like that's the, the broad, broadest takeaway that I Got it. Okay, so let me clarify these terminologies like occupancy network, let's say vector space. We talked about bird's eye view in the in the past. So mm -hmm. for example, we're all talking about, let's say, 3D space around us, right? And um, would you say that's like vector space is a close kind of de um, definition to that? And then occupancy network is okay. more defining how you view that 3D space. And then bird's eye view is just one aspect of the, the, the angle of that, what you're looking at in terms of how you're viewing that 3D so space? The, we, we don't know exactly how yeah. Tesla defines the terms internally. So we yeah. guess a little bit on, the, on some of this stuff. For instance, vector space wasn't something that they ever perfectly defined. But uh, in the way that they used it, we take vector space to be sort of a 3D representation of the objects in the environment. And, and now they've kind of moved away from vector space, at least in Ashok's talk, they moved away from vector space as part of the terminology. And they're now talking about occupancy. Uh, he used the term occupancy network a lot. Yeah. The difference between an occupancy network and an occupancy map, by the way, is occupancy network is the neural network that produces the occupancy map. Internally, they're building an occupancy network that predicts occupancy. And when I've been talking about this, I keep using the term occupancy map, which is it's the data structure that comes out of an occupancy network 
it's easier to think about, I think. Like this, we have this network because we want this kind of output. And here's why we want this kind of output. So I keep talking about the map, which is the data that comes out of it. So, so when the you map talk- itself is like the voxel-based representation okay. of the space. Got it. So the occupancy map is basically the 3D space mapped out of all the different objects and what they're doing in that 3D space. Yeah. And that's produced by an occupancy network, which is basically a neural network that's analyzing all yeah. the, the so data it, feeds. So it's just one slight difference there, yeah. right? So instead of saying, you know, there is a car and it is here, right? Yeah. What an occupancy map does is it takes a space around you and it breaks it up into blocks. And I don't know what the current grid size is, but it was one yeah. foot before approximately. Got it. So, you ha- so imagine taking all the space around you and making it into a, into a 3D one foot grid. And then inside each one of those blocks, you have a label for what stuff is in that box, right? So essentially mm-hmm. you break all the space around the car down into these into this one foot grid. And then you say, you know, is this just empty air? Is this a curb? Is this a tree? Is this the a backhoe? Is this the is this the shovel on the back of a backhoe mm-hmm. hanging into, you know, whatever mm-hmm. it is. You've got a label for all of these things in 3D space over the, you know, the space you care about going up 10, 10 feet or 20 feet and going out maybe 100 feet or 200 feet in every direction, right? You just have a box that the car is centered in and you're labeling everything inside that space. And once you've got those, the neural network produces all those labels Mm -hmm. and then downstream neural networks can consume those labels. They take that as input to make planning decisions about what they're going to do or control decisions. They could do that too. And then you can, it's also a representation that human beings understand pretty well. So for instance, if I have an occupancy map like that, I can, I can render it. Like I can make a little 3d model of it that a human being can look at Mm -hmm. and say, does this make sense? And you can use that to debug the map to understand stuff. And they, they actually do that with neural trick with this trick so there's a thing called the nerf neural rendering field that was another piece of technology that that uh that uh that came up in the thing and they can use a nerf to basically take the output and turn it into like a 3d picture that a human can look at and you can tell if the neural network's doing its job or not for one thing right so that's that, that's one of the reasons the structure is useful is because people can understand it it's not a total black box sure you can you could basically um, label it uh, later or for errors. Yeah, you can get right. the errors and easily uh, label it as well. Yeah, oh, and uh, labeling, I mean, so you you can do your auto labeler. Yeah. You know, you take you take your clip from the mm-hmm. car and you dump it into the auto labeler and the auto labeler, you know, generates all the labels and stuff that for all the objects that you wanted in the 2D frame for classification and that kind of stuff. But the auto labeler is also making the voxel labels for the 3D space. And and then if you want a human to be able to look at that, to tell if the auto labeler is doing its job or to make corrections or whatnot, you have to convert it into something a human being can understand. And so a nerf is basically a way of taking this voxel output, turning it into a 3D, you know, drivable animated scene. And then a human can say, oh, that's a pedestrian and this is a fire plug and this is a mailbox. You Mm -hmm. can label those things once a human once you've rendered in a format, a human can understand. Mm-hmm. Got it. So um, with these occupancy networks and occupancy maps, so we've got this, you know, 3D space that's mapped out, let's say one by one, uh, by one by one by one, you know, grid um, of the whole space. So um, where does predictions come in? Like, for example, let's say a car is moving this way and a different car is moving this way. And like, you know, if you drive at a certain place and you're going to get hit by that car like how do they 
you know, uh, bring that into so kind this, of the occupancy this is map. all pre prediction. Okay. Right. So you got a stack of neural networks. And in the beginning, we've talked about this a bunch of times. You've got perception, which mm -hmm. is understanding the current situation to the best of your ability. Use the sensors. You take the data in and you build a usable representation of the situation that you're in. Then other parts of the system take that representation and they do planning. What should I do? Mm -hmm. And then after that, there's another part of the system, which is not neural networks or mostly not. It's mostly not neural networks right now, which actually takes that plan and then turns the steering wheel, hits the brakes and that kind of stuff, right? So some of the planning is done as neural networks and some of it is done in not neural networks. Like in, a, in Ashok's talk, they talked about this implicit collision network thing that they were doing and that which is, uh, that's a, it, uh, let's transition to that topic for a minute because it's sure. a nice sort of, of example of what's going on here. That is explicitly a planning function so the thing is, uh, in, in the part of the talk where Ashok was talking about their, um, you know, uh, having systems that assist drivers in avoiding collisions. So when you misapply a pedal, mm -hmm. or maybe you're doing something wrong, or maybe you've passed out, and the car is going to intervene in order to go. So part of under, and of course, this stuff would all apply when the car is driving an autopilot also, these tools are all available. But um, being able to make a plan like, okay, here's the situation. I'm going, you know, 20 miles an hour. This is the shape of the road. And here's a wall. Am I going to hit the wall? Right. And if I'm, if, if, if there's a risk, I'm going to hit the wall. What should I do to avoid hitting a wall? Should I break? Should I turn right? And you have to take everything in the, in the, in the, in the, you know, that, so that's a planning function. So the implicit collision network is a clever way of generating a neural network output that a regular heuristic algorithm can search, use to search through the space of possible future actions to find good ones, and that becomes the plan, yeah. right? So that's that's the, a neural network producing an output, which is, it's a kind of, it's a perception, but it's a perception that is specifically formulated in a way that it's easy to write a program to search through the possibilities. But because building the neural network so that the neural network searches through the possibilities can be complicated. If you if you have a set of choices, like turn the, you know, if you're gonna drive down a road, if you're avoiding obstacles, you have to say turn the wheel left, decelerate, turn the wheel right. You know, there's you have to plan forward in time. Mm -hmm. And the and what you do right now might depend a lot on what it means for what your options are four or five or six steps down the road. So to do that. We don't usually have a neural network do what's called the rollout, where it takes a step and then evaluates and takes a step and does evaluate. Instead, what we want is we want a neural network to produce a sort of an evaluation function that another program can basically use to step through the possibilities. And in a car, you've got to do this quickly. Like they want to, you want to evaluate this in a few milliseconds. So the neural network output has to be formulated in a way where it's very easy for a conventional program to quickly roll through, you know, to search the tree of possibilities to find a good, uh, uh, to find a good outcome or to find an optimal outcome relatively quickly. And this implicit collision network is a, is a way of doing that. It's you, you take the, the, the situation as the car perceives it, and then you render it in a form, because I think if you look at the talk, mm -hmm. the explanation is like, well, why do they have yeah. this map and which direction the car is facing changes collision probabilities going with a, you know, 10 second horizon or 20 second horizon. It seems, it seems kind of 
um, you know, not the most obvious way mm. to describe this thing. And the reason they do it is because uh, is because an algorithm can quickly use that map to search all the possibilities to okay. determine an optimal plan. So this is kind of how neural networks contribute to your ability to plan. They can take the perception and put it in a format where a regular program can quickly check out all the possibilities and decide what the best one is. Got it. So, so to clarify, clarify all this. So the, the cameras, the neural nets are taking the data from the cameras and basically creating a 3d space, let's say occupancy map. And then from that, the neural nets are also evaluating that map. Let's say, um, for, you know, collision, I guess implicit collision network, perhaps maybe like, you know, figuring out what's, um, the risks involved in different, you know, paths and that, and then the yeah. planning takes that, all that output and then evaluates it mostly through heuristics, I'm guessing, to create the optimal plan for it. Right. Um, I mean, it, so AlphaGo, you know, it had a neural network that would basically tell you, is this position good or bad? And of all the moves you could take on the board, which one at this point in the game is a good move to take, right? Like it, it would just, you know, of the of, of all 300 moves or whatever that you could do, it would rank them from yeah. best to worst, right? But the thing is, you can't play a game just always picking the best move because sometimes subtle things happen two, three, four moves down the road. I mean, yeah. if your evaluation function is good enough that it can say that it can look way, you know, it can it, it can guess what will happen way down the road if you do a particular thing. So in the first version of of, uh, of AlphaGo, what they did was they did Monte Carlo rollouts. The time horizon that the neural network could see forward to understand the implications wasn't super far. I mean, it was two or three or four stones, two or three four moves, right? Mm -hmm. But what they could do is because they had this neural network that would just basically say, "These are your best ten options in this position," and then you could say, "Well, for each one of those, what would be my next best ten options?" So you go from you know ten to a hundred to a thousand. You know, it multiplies by ten at each step. But if you search this whole tree, but but what you get from that is is you're using your evaluation function to kind of search of a possible tree of decisions that you're going to make. So in a sense, this is that doing that, that's called a rollout when you basically use a network to make a decision. And then you say, well, what would I do next? And what would I, those are, you know, you're rolling out this, this a sequence of possibilities. So it's uh, writing code to do rollouts, especially it is, is an easy way to make your planning horizon farther. Like your neural network, if you just train it from the ground and you say, which way should I turn the wheel, right? It, it typically at any given level of capability, you'll have a certain amount of time forward that it can easily predict. And as it gets better, it'll be able to predict forward much further. You know, it'll take more things into account and more second order effects and third order effects and what happens next and so on and be able to produce a good decision. But barring that, when you're at a certain level of capability, what you'd like to be able to do to just get the neural network you have <clears throat> is run it multiple times on subsequent time steps. That's a rollout. So the planning function, you know, to the extent that your neural network isn't godlike in its perception mm -hmm. and able to always give you the best answer, one way to just make it better is to is to have it guess and then pause it. Okay. And then what would you do after that as a way of just searching through the tree of possible futures mm -hmm. that you that you might want to consider? But if you're going to do that heuristically, it involves running the neural network many, many times for each decision that you make. Mm -hmm. So 
you need the neural network that produces that output to be pretty quick because you're gonna have to run it a bunch of times. And you need the algorithm that evaluates that and chooses the next possibility to also be very simple because you have to run it many times. So it, the cleverness in the in this implicit collision algorithm is it is it strikes a nice balance there. They they produce a relatively simple neural network that can be run many times, and they also produce it it, it produces an output that a heuristic can easily evaluate to make decisions about which which future states do I want to consider. Got it. So- so is there any terminology of what this implicit collision network outputs? Like with the occupancy network, it outputs the occupancy map. Is there anything I, I'm, like I'm similar? Familiar. Yeah. I, it, you know, Tesla's making up words for a lot of these things because they're uh-huh. inventing the stuff. Yeah. And uh, so they, they probably have internal wording for it. There may be uh-huh. other people who've done this. I, frequently, it's been the case when I go look at stuff, you know, Tesla has come up with it. Somebody else had the idea. And they saw it and they adapted or whatever the deal is. Mm-hmm. I don't know where this idea comes from. So I don't know what the Got other it. terminology would be for it. Got it. Um, so back um, a while ago, we, we were you know, positing that version 11 would be like a unification of, let's say, the highway networks, the local driving networks and the parking lot networks all together. Is Tesla getting close to that? Do you think there's part of this unification already happening with the, the current builds? I... Uh, it's possible they're doing it. They're not talking about it. And mm-hmm. I haven't looked at the code myself in quite a while. Um, my guess is they set that aside um, and they're focusing on other things. I I think that my guess would be that uh, that some of these capabilities they expected to get without having to do a lot of work. And so when they were looking down the road, they were like, oh, the next thing will be unifying all the networks, mm-hmm. right? But they bumped up against some obstacles that they just weren't making progress on. And they've had to go back, make some changes. They finally breaking through those obstacles. But they basically stopped worrying about trying to unify. Because unifying the stacks, it gets you some things that eventually they need to have. But you don't care about those things until you've got the surface, (laughs) until you've got your city street driving, basically. Where like, like, I feel like the stack thing, it basically gets you not hatch modes when you get on and off a freeway to switch into mm-hmm. autopilot. It gets you better perception on autopilot. Mm-hmm. Um, FSD is definitely better than autopilot as long as you operate inside a velocity that it's that it's capable at uh, capable of. But my, my sense is that FSD has got some limitations in it where you can't safely use it at high speeds. And so that's why they're not using it on highways right now. Plus, they have autopilot, and it works pretty well. So yeah. they might as well just keep using that. So unifying those would be nice. It would simplify the system. It would reduce you know, the overhead that they have. It's great, but it's not a priority right now because they have a system that works well enough on the highway. So they're just not doing it. And then they, the other thing is like parking lots. Parking lots, like the system's not good at parking lots right now, in my opinion. And mm-hmm. unifying the stack is an opportunity to like get significantly better performance in parking lots, but it's a trade-off. It adds a significant amount of complexity and it might have negative consequences mm-hmm. for your just driving on surface streets. Got it. So, you know, that's not something that you want to take. That's probably not something that you want to do pretty happy with your surface streets. And so that's true. I, like my general sense is the surface streets thing took longer. They had some fundamental problems. They've gone back They've reevaluated some stuff, including moving to geometry, mm. because they've discovered that just lots of classification with simpler spatial stuff wasn't good enough. So they rearchitected that. And maybe it'll be good enough now after they roll this thing out. And like if they feel like they've they're they've made enough progress on city streets, then maybe they go back to doing the, the stack unification. 
Yeah, interesting. Or, or maybe they did it and they just didn't tell us. I think that's <laughs> unlikely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it, because it's still not good in parking lots, at least as it will see, it'll be really fun. When I get yeah. to 1069, I'll try navigating to and from parking lots, yeah. and like if it's significantly better at making the transition from surface streets to parking lots and maneuvering in parking lots, then maybe I'll feel like maybe yeah. they made progress on unifying the stack. Yeah. Makes sense. Um, so I wanted to uh, dive into a bit with the 10.69 release notes. Um, it's always mm -hmm. helpful to get your kind of take on this. Um, right before we were uh, we started recording you're just reviewing them quickly and you're like, oh, everything's pretty straightforward. And I was commenting like for most people, no, <laughs> it's like the terminology is, is so foreign, you know? Exactly. And so I think um, what I'd lo love for you to do is maybe uh, go through a few of these and just in layman's term, just like explain kind of fundamentally what's going on. Like what are the key improvements in 10.69 that at least Tesla highlights? I'm sure there's a bunch more, you know, improvements under the hood. But the first one, it says, um, um, added a new deep lane guidance module to the vector lanes neural network, which fuses features extracted from the video streams with course map data, for example, lane counts and lane connecti connectivities. This architecture achieves a 44% lower error rate on lane topology compared to the previous model, enabling smoother control before lanes and their connectivities become visually apparent. This provides a way to make every autopilot drive as good as someone driving their own commute, yet in a sufficiently, su sufficiently general way that adapts for road changes. All right, so translation. So that last part seems like a f subjective evaluation mm. that I will have to <laughs> withhold. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, we've been talking about how they've been adding GPTs, right? Transformers and other mm. sort of feature um, evaluators to, to make uh, representations that are easier to make decisions on. And it sounds like, so they had the, the, this vector lanes neural network that they added in, was it? 10.11 or 10.12, I can't remember. But anyway, they introduced that and then the intersection behavior improved significantly because instead, previously they had been using the uh, giant bag of points and then having an algorithm that ran through it to try to understand the lane. When you come up to an intersection right. and you're gonna make a decision about going or stopping or turning or not turning, you need to understand what's the intersection. And what that means is like, how many lanes come in? How many lanes go out? What lanes can connect to other lanes? Like, can this one turn right? Can that one turn left? Most intersections that you come to as a human being, you look at that and you just know this intersect, this one goes straight. It, and sometimes you know because they're markings. And sometimes you know because it's just obvious from the intersection. The shape in the intersection tells you. So in the past, you know, prior to having the neural network thing, they were doing that with a program, right? Essentially, that was just basically taking a, a little 2D map, you know, where all the stripes were and saying, oh, you know, in, with a human written program, this lane must connect to that one and this one must be a right turn lane and that kind of stuff. And what they switched to is they took that and they stuffed it in a neural network and the neural network came out and it just pr produced a set of continuity trajectories. Like this is a possible trajectory, that is one and so on. So they let the neural network figure that out. And in edge cases, if you have a weird intersection mm. and you know, we, if you, if you look at FSD videos, you know, people delight in going out and finding weird intersections, right? right. Um, those are really tough to write for a human to anticipate every possible weird thing that could happen and what you should do. Neural networks are better at taking some weird thing that kind of looks like something that you know, but is different in one important way and understanding what the connectivity is. So they added that a couple versions back. And this is basically, oh, we added to it because it wasn't good enough. 
essentially. They yeah. added more, they added another module on top of the thing to essentially deepen the thing's understanding and its ability to predict this connectivity in edge cases. Got it. So we're, they're talking about course map data, so like lane counts and lane connectivity. So what I'm taking this to be is, so they have this vector lanes neural network, right? That determines mm -hmm. all the lanes and their trajectories. And now they've added to that kind of like what the lanes are going to look like further out based upon some basic map data of like how many lanes a, a street might have or, you know, where just where the lanes head, let's say two lanes merge into one or something. So they're predicting these lanes further out, which gives them more accuracy. Is that kind of what they're doing? I, I, I'm taking it a slightly different way. Okay. Um, and it's, it's, it's vague. So, mm -hmm. you know, this is not super specific. I, the thing I'm taking is that the previous version of the neural network, it didn't take map data in. So like the navigation map, one of the things the navigation maps will have, I, ideally it will be accurate, but it isn't always accurate, is like this road is two lanes going this way and two lanes going this way. Or at an intersection, they'll have data that says, you know, there's three lanes at these intersections here. And the map data might say there's a right turn lane and a left turn lane or whatever the deal is. So the neural network previously was just like taking the cameras in and basically saying, here's what I see, and then making its decision based on that. Okay. And now what they've done is they've added a feature where it can take the navigation data and it can consider that in its solution for that thing. So like if the, you know, if the neural network is like, is that two lanes or three lanes? And it's not quite sure, but it's got this course map data yeah. that's just basically saying, oh, this intersection should be three. It's like, oh, I'm going to err on three because that's what it. the map says. And that'll improve that accuracy. Got it. So it's not just predicting like further out. It's predicting right now what the lanes are around yeah. it. Got it. Now, of course, a side effect of this is that you can predict farther out because, of course, mm -hmm. one of the things that happens with further out is that the closer you are, the better you can see something, the more accurate the neural network is gonna be. Like, you know, you might it might look at a road and say, oh, this is two lanes, two lanes, two lanes, and it, the farther it gets and the less well it can see, it's like two, three, two, one might be less. And if the map says two, then you're just, then the neural network might, might decide, okay, I'm gonna say two, because that's what the map says. Yeah, so before, were they not adding this course map data to their vector lanes neural network, you think? Well, this, the way this is worded implies mm. that they weren't because it, they added it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it seems like, I mean, the, the vector lanes neural network is a big upgrade, feels like, um, to get more accurate uh, lane predictions, lane, you know, mm -hmm. lanes. And it seems like adding course map data seems like it could be a big improvement. I mean, they're saying that it achieves yeah. a 44% lower error rate on lane topology compared to previous model. I mean, that's a big improvement. Um, yeah. Wow. But now, remember, a 44% improvement is, it might have been that it was, you know, 99.0% good, mm. so it had 1% error. And a 44% improvement is, now it's 99.44% yeah. good. So the error rate has gone from, you know, whatever it was before to, mm. you know, uh, uh, what, 56% uh, of what it was. Mm. So it's essentially a doubling in, a, a reduction mm. by a factor of about two in your error. But the mm. thing is, you know, once again, these are edge cases because it yeah. it's already pretty good at getting most of the intersections most of the time. And you can imagine how, you know, when you first run the thing out, let's just put the neural network in, see how the neural network does based on the cameras. You yeah. run it in the world for a while and you say, OK, here's where we're having problems. And then you look at the thing and you say, well, you know what? The map data is mostly right in those situations. So how about we have the neural network consider what the map says yeah. when it is making decisions about this stuff? And so they add a feature to the neural network where it can take that map data and can and take it as an input as 
one of the things it does. Now, of course, one of the problems with map data is when you, if you rely too heavily on map data, you mm -hmm. can really because maps have errors and sometimes the errors are egregiously bad. Mm -hmm. And so if you assume the map is right, occasionally you will get in a really tough spot. Got it. Interesting. So you can't totally trust it. You want yeah. the neural network to look at the map, look at what it sees and make a value judgment. Mm -hmm. It's like the map says there's 10 lanes and I only see two. <laughs> right? That might be a typo. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I guess that's one of the benefits of having a vision kind of, uh, you know, focus approach is you could rely on vision more than just, you know, let's say HD maps or, you know, what. And that's kind of what you want. Yeah. I mean, that's what a human being does, right? Yeah. You trust your perception. Mm -hmm. But I mean, in the case of a human, the, 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 the thing, the, the comparison is probably what you remember. Like imagine that you're driving in, you're driving someplace you've driven before, but you haven't driven re recently. So you have a general memory that, oh, after I come over this hill, I'm going to want to turn right. And I want to be in the right-hand lane because that's the only lane that can turn right. Like that's your memory of it. Um, and so you might use that, right? But because it's a memory, it, if it's wrong, or if you come over the hill and there's a cone in that lane, mm -hmm. then you have to change your plan. And you want the vision system to look and say, oh, there's a truck parked in that lane. What's plan B, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. exactly. you, you want the vision to take priority because <laughs> yeah. it's got a concrete understanding of the world but you you in situations where your horizon extends out too far or there's some ambiguity in what you see having the map to like split you know to essentially do the tiebreaker for you is very it can you know and this is kind of what it's doing if it if we're get if they're getting a 44 percent improvement then half the time the map data is resolving what was a problem for them before right yeah yeah definitely um yeah i mean it brings up also the big challenge with multi-sensor fusion it's like if you're relying on lidar and hd maps and vision and radar and all these things it's like which one which well, how do you give priority you know it's like mm. i mean it's just more confusing than if you're doing a vision yeah. you know focused approach and course map d is just there to help you in case yeah. you know yeah sensor fusion is just like one category of input fusion mm. you know where you have inputs yeah and they all have some amount of error and you have to bring them all together occasionally you're making decisions about in this situation how reliable is this data versus that one or given what i see should i trust that mm. is you know it's can it can get really subtle yeah yeah. Um, the second release note says uh, for 10.69 says improved overall driving smoothness without sacrificing latency through better modeling of system and actuation latency and trajectory planning. Trajectory planner now independently accounts for latency from steering commands to actual steering actuation as well as acceleration and brake commands to actuation. This results in a trajectory that is more accurate. That is a more accurate model of how the vehicle will drive. This allows better downstream controller tracking and smoothness while also allowing a more accurate response during harsh maneuvers. Yeah. So this make this sounds like previously they had a very simple model of of the car dynamics. So um, you want you want to have a model of the car dynamics. Uh, you know, when you convert your plan into a set of actions and you have an envelope like you don't want too much acceleration or too much turning uh, force. You don't want any jerk. And, you know, you're turning into a lane that's over there. And you want your car to hit the center of the lane exactly, not to be too far left or too far right or whatnot. You need to have a model of of the of you know 
the consequences of what you do, mm-hmm. like how that happens going forward. And in the beginning, you can start with a really simple model. Simple models are better because they're less likely to have bugs and they're less likely to have weird second order effects and stuff like that that create other problems for you. But once you're pretty, you know, at some point you get to where the limiting factor in being able to hit the center of the lane when you do your right turn or your left turn is oh, my model of the car assumes it rotates about its center <laughs> as opposed to like the front wheels turn and the back one's do, and it's this long. Um, so upping that model, and in this case, they're not talking about a geometry thing. They're talking about latency. Like when you start to turn a steering wheel, right, how long does it take before I've got the wheel all the way to the position that I'm going to complete? You know, because uh, you can imagine the planner says, okay, I'm going to turn right, boop, you know, and in the model, the wheels instantly go to 45 degrees. And of course, in reality, that's not what happens, right? The wheels slowly turn over. And if you take that into account, when you make your turns, you make smoother, more accurate turns. Mm. So, All right. That makes sense. Um, next release note, improved unprotected left turns with more appropriate speed profile when approaching and exiting median crossover regions in the presence of high-speed uh, cross-traffic um, "Quote unquote Chuck Cook style unprotected unprotected left turns. This was done oh, by allowing optimizable um, initial jerk to mimic the harsh pedal pressed by a human when required to go in front of high speed objects. Also improved lateral profile approaching such safety regions to allow for better pose that aligns well for exiting the region. Finally, improved interaction with objects that are entering or waiting inside the median crossover region with better with better modeling of their future intent." Yeah, so that's a ton of stuff. Yeah, yeah. So that's a that's a laundry list of things that they that they uh, tackled in order to make the Chuck took Cook style left turn mm-hmm. work. It, it's a it's a ton of stuff. But it, is it? So what parts of this? So I mean, don't yeah, I mean, so they're basically saying like to get into the median, right? They improved basically probably modeling of how to get in quick, you know, the right speed, um, how to get in, and then. But what does this mean? This was done by allowing optimizable initial, initial jerk to mimic the harsh pedal pressed by a human. Yeah. So does that mean they're just making the the speed just more comfortable, like like a human, like would go into yeah. that? So that jerk median? is the rate of change of acceleration. Okay. You know, so like there's position, and the first derivative is velocity. You know, it's mm-hmm. a rate of change of position. The rate of change of velocity is acceleration. Jerk is the technical name for the rate of change of acceleration. So that's like how fast okay. you push the gas pedal down. Not where is the gas pedal, but yeah. how fast do you push it down? So essentially they modeled the, and that's something people are really sensitive to. Like a big component of comfort for human beings in, in uh, longitudinal control of a vehicle, forward and backwards control, is not what level the brake is at, but how fast did you get the brake to that point or not where the accelerator, how fast did you get that? So they're now essentially, you know, they, this, this is similar to the, to the piece we were talking about before, where you're not assuming that the wheels instantly turn to whatever the position is when you're doing your turn, you assume that they gradually get there. And they're, they're similarly, they're not modeling that the accelerator went from zero to 0.2 instantly, but that it slowly got there or that it got there with some movement profile and that, and, and once again, that affects, you know, where that affect, like if you predict, if you're trying to predict, like, where will the car go if I do this set of actions and how will it feel to the occupants? If you're the, you know, if your uh, accelerator model mm-hmm. or your brake model is crude enough, then that, then that limits your you know, what you can do within a certain comfort profile. So now in a Chuck Cook style turn, you want to be able to get aggressive, yeah. 
but you don't want to be slamming people around the inside of the car. So you have to get more refined in that, like, you know, what does aggressive mean exactly? Like what, what sets of controls can I do that will get me moving quick, but which won't, you know, make my, you know, leave bruises on the occupants. Got it. That makes sense. And then basically also uh, improving the position, I guess that gets into the median and interacting with objects that are entering or waiting to, to enter. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, makes general sense. So that's really complicated, yeah. right? I mean, medians, they're different sizes. Yeah. Some are only going to fit one car. Some will fit two, depending on whether a median is like a little to the left. Or the gap mm -hmm. in the median is a little to the left or a little to the right. You might imagine that cars coming in, it might, you know, because sometimes when you turn through a median, you turn to the left of oncoming cars. And, you know, other median geometries, you turn past the car, right? You go mm -hmm. to the right of the oncoming car and you turn around each other when no, you enter. Yeah. And so understanding that from the shape of the median wow. and, you know, is, is, a, is a little bit subtle. But if you're if it's a Chuck Cook style stop, because people use that median not just to turn left from Cuck, yeah. Chuck Street onto the thing, but to turn onto Chuck Street. And some of them are doing U-turns. So, you you know, you have to look at the thing and sort of infer that all these things might be happening. And. When you see a car coming or entering, like predicting, like what is he doing? What what should I expect him to do? And what is he expecting me to do? That's all part of modeling this dance, which you have to get right. And you have to get it right quickly because you're in you're like you're playing in traffic. You're not moving very fast and cars are coming at you quickly. Got it. Makes sense. Um, the next piece knows is added control <laughs> for arbitrary low speed moving volumes from occupancy network. This also enables finer, finer control for more precise object shapes that cannot be easily represented by a cuboid primitive. This required predicting velocity at every 3D voxel. We may now control for slow-moving UFOs. Yeah, so this, you know, we, we talked about how they were moving away from needing to recognize things really. Well, so one, one of the things about... Uh, about classification is the fundamental classification sort of delimiter that uh, that Tesla uses is a cuboid. It's a three-dimensional volume, the minimum three-dimensional volume, which contains all of something. Like mm -hmm. if it's a truck, okay. you know, what's a small cube I can draw around that thing that where all of the truck is inside the cube. And then the car treats that as the boundary that it needs to stay out of. <clears throat> but when you get complicated things, uh, especially in tight situations, like imagine that you have, you know, like a utility truck with like one of those cherry pickers hanging off the side of it parked on a narrow residential road with some cones and you have to move around it. Well, you want to know that you can, you know, if the cherry picker's 20 feet up, right. Mm -hmm. And it's off to the side, you want to know you can drive under it. If you drive a, draw a cuboid around that thing that includes it, it seems like it's occluding the whole road. So you need this mm -hmm. kind of more subtle understanding that of how, singular objects decompose into occupied volumes of space so that you can maneuver around them in, in tight situations. And so by moving away from just recognizing and classifying things and treating them as like these, these things, especially in a situation where you, where on a certain level, everything the car sees is a cube, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. That like that becomes a, a big constraint in some situations and they're moving away from that. <clears throat> and that also gets you a thing where if you start focusing on what's occupied, you can deal with things that you don't recognize very well. You know, like if you got a pile of dirt in the road or you got a pile of something, garbage, mm. or, you know, you have a, hum a human being collapsed on the road, but you don't recognize it as a human because, 
you know, they have some garbage laying on them or, or whatever. You can you can start to deal with just arbitrary things in the world that you've never encountered before, but which you need to understand the shape of them so that you can around them. And they they apply velocity to it, too. So if you see some weird thing moving like a tumbleweed, right? So mm. I don't know if they have a tumbleweed classifier. Yeah. Maybe they do. But, uh, you know, it's this arbitrary thing that's moving across the road. Like it, it's not really a static object. It's kind of a static object. It happens to be blowing, but it's not moving of its own will. Right. And so how do you deal with the fact that there's this thing moving across the road slowly that you need to be aware of? And so geometry is a way of just dealing with all of that stuff as a single category. Right. Mm -hmm. I, even if you don't recognize it, even if it's moving but not moving like a highway, like, you know, a road user, right? Mm -hmm. You can still deal with it. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So what does it mean by, it says this required predicting velocity at every 3D voxel? Yeah. So when you see the tumbleweed moving across yeah. the road, you know, the way the occupancy network, uh, you know, recognizes it, it has some label for, I don't know, vegetative matter or something mm -hmm. like that. It'll, the, 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 the labels for the, for the individual voxels, they're not decided by a person. A neural network figures out for, you know, I have, um, you know, 128 bytes to describe what is in this voxel, and I'm gonna allocate them this way. Mm -hmm. And, you know, uh, there will be some representation for that that will map onto what, uh, what a tumbleweed is moving across the road that will capture its properties and that kind of stuff, the rough shape of it and what part of the tumbleweed that you're looking at. So you have a tumbleweed moving through a voxel. One of the things you wanna understand is, is of the stuff that's in this voxel, it, you know, what of it is moving and in what direction is it moving? So uh, if you're going to deal, you know, you're, you're kind of your choices are you either represent velocity for every voxel, like the stuff in this voxel is moving that way at, mm -hmm. you know, one meter per second, or you don't do that. If you don't do that, then all the decisions that you that you're going to make based on that, they have to assume that everything is completely static. So now you can't deal with the tumbleweed effectively, like if you don't want to hit it mm -hmm. or you know, if you don't want to have to recognize it as an object. So having velocity for for these arbitrary geometry things uh, is useful. Like there's a, it, it enables you to make a lot of decisions well that you otherwise wouldn't be able to make well. But it requires you to not only evaluate that there is something here, but that it's moving, you know, such yeah. that like one second from now, it'll be in this position and two seconds or 100 milliseconds forward or whatever. Mm -hmm. So that means they have to label every single vo voxel with velocity. Got it. And then we may now control for slow moving UFOs. I mean, is this, what's a yeah. UFO? Un a tumbleweed. A tumble, okay. Unidentified, so something is it? you don't recognize. Is it, it's not flying object, is it? Is What's a, like, is, is it just un unidentified object or? A moving yeah, object maybe. or something. I don't know oh, what they okay. what what their TLA means. <laughs> yeah. in this okay. But I guess just you know UFO. Got it. Okay. Um, next release: an upgraded occupancy network to use video instead of images from single time step. Okay. Uh, this temporal context allows the network to be robust to temporary occlusions and enables prediction of occupancy flow. Also, improved ground truth with semantic semantics driven outlier. Outlier rejection, hard example mining, and increase the data set by 2.4 times. Yeah, what does this mean? Um, upgraded occupancy network to use video instead of images from single time step. What is single time step? Sorry. The way to read this is upgraded occupancy network to use video instead of images from single time step. Oh, uh, okay. Got it. Right. So instead of feeding 
instead of uh, training okay. the occupancy map based on single slices of time, yeah, yeah. and this is these are all this is part and parcel of having velocity for the occupancy yeah. map. Obviously, if you're going to predict velocity, you have to look at how it's evolving over time. If you're going to look at how it's evolving over time, you need to take into account multiple moments in time yeah. separated. Right. And so so they're using video. Got you know, it. video is multiple images. I mean, equally this seems like a, this seems like the most important update. I mean, why isn't this like number one? Uh, if you're going to you know move uh, from it, the images to it, vi video, it kind of feels like they're saying the same thing. A couple of, I don't know. OK, from the past. It's, but, it's inferred maybe from the previous. Um, yeah, it's, I don't know. It probably if I thought about it, there would be some way of understanding this as distinct from other things that they're saying. But it does yeah. seem kind of implied by the other stuff that they're doing. I mean, but I mean, would you agree that this is like generally taking a step back? One of the big things that they're doing, you know, with this release, not just with this release, probably over some period of time, which is moving away from, you know, just just from Classic single time it, step, yeah. yeah, into video from, and into this from occupancy network. To geometry. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> or at, they're not giving up on ontology; they're just yeah. relying less on it, and they're mm -hmm. having better geometry and yeah. they're using it better. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this just seems like it's. I mean, yeah, it's like. This seems to be one of the big kind of, I guess, um, I don't say milestones, but big, I guess, movements or improvements, you know, for FSD, you know, in this season, which is this occupancy network, video, you know, accounting for occlusions, allowing for predictions, just kind of like a better, more accurate perception, right, engine. Um, yeah, definitely. Interesting. All right. Yeah, the, the geometry thing, I'm super happy to see them at, you know, moving more to the, because trying to rely entirely on classification or rely too heavily on classification, you know, gets tricky. Like classification, yeah. you, the B, the BEV thing is kind of, uh, it's kind of this middle ground between geometry and, uh, classification. I mean, you're trying to, you're trying to, you're getting two 3D stuff when you go to BEV, mm. when you use bird's eye view networks. Yeah. But you're kind of carrying the baggage of classification along with you when you go into that. You're still basically saying, looking from the top, there's a car at this position, blah, 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 blah. But the car's still a cuboid, <laughs> right? So if you imagine that you, you have a truck driving through and it's got some weird trailer hanging off the back, a boat or something, right? It's like you can't. It, it's it's hard to do a recognition that's going to be able to deal with every every single kind of thing that might be on a trailer and every kind of trailer because there are all kinds of weird trailers in the world and. So geometry kind of deals reasonably in, in those situations where your classifier is just like bumping up against a wall. Got it. So, I mean, with, when you talk about geometry versus just, let's say, ontology or classifying, with geometry, you could break down these objects, I guess, more yeah. specifically. And, and kind of, it's a more granular approach, basically. Um, yeah. than just you see, a, every a object becomes ontology. stuff in space. Yeah. In addition to being like a human being, a human being is stuff in space. Um, but the, one of the cool things about this is that stuff in space that doesn't have a label is still stuff in space. Whereas with a classifier, you know, you kind of have this problem where stuff that you don't have a label for kind of doesn't exist, right? And so that creates these holes in in the way that you're, you know, that you can address things effectively. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, would that also help? Like, I remember this one one situation. This was back, I think, last summer when we were driving um, FSD in my car. We went into this um, area with the gated community, and there was this gate, 
and mm-hmm. it felt like the car was just gonna drive through the gate. Yeah. And it was a small gate. This is like a line thing. And I stopped. I, <laughs> I, I stopped that. I'm like, whoa, it's crazy. I mean, is that one example where? You know, yeah. At that no, time, it didn't. Example. It didn't classify that. Maybe at that time. Yeah. Well, it saw but, that thing, and it's like that doesn't look like a gate. Yeah. Exactly. So there's nothing. nothing, there, there's nothing. Right? But geometry, at least, <laughs> yeah. you would say, hey, there's something there that's but, static. So the geometry will say yeah. it may not be a gate. It's still stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> yeah. It's important stuff, man. Um, all right. Let's do our our last release note. There are more release notes here, but um, I think. Um, for time's sake, upgraded to a new two-stage architecture to produce object kinematics, for example, velocity acceleration, yaw rate, where network compute is allocated O objects instead of O space. This improved velocity estimates for faraway crossing vehicles by 20% while using one-tenth of the compute. Yeah, so this that O notation is, uh, it's a way of describing how an approach to solving a problem scales as the number of things you're dealing with increases. So what they did was they, they essentially, they went to a different, they went to an, a network, you know, and processing approach to dealing with objects where, uh, where it doesn't like, um, if you if your if your if your processing goes as O space, then if you want to look twice as far down the road, it takes twice as much compute. And if you want to look four times down the road, it takes four times as much compute. In other words, but it goes as as it's not just linear stuff. It's it goes as space, right? So, uh, you know, if you want to evaluate everything that's 20 feet up and 100 feet down and 100 feet on both sides, that takes um, one eighth as much processing as if you want to go twice as far in each one of those directions, mm, right? Sure. But the thing is, there are a lot of things in the world where you don't want to waste compute on on all these things. Like, for instance, if if the thing you're looking at right now, if if the aspect of reality that you're trying to extract right at this moment is about objects, Got then it. you don't want your compute to scale with space because you could have this huge volume of space with no objects or one object in it. And it, and you know, if you essentially want to, you know, uh, you know, double the linear dimension that you can see distance wise in each direction, you got to add eight times the compute and eight times the memory and all, all, you know, it, it just becomes very resource intensive. Got it. If what you care about is objects, what you want is something that scales with the number of objects. So if you have four pedestrians or eight pedestrians or 12 pedestrians, it scales with that and not with, and this is an important thing for being able to get FSD to where you can use it on the highway, mm-hmm. right? Because on the highway, you're frequently in a sparse situation, but you have big distances involved because you're moving fast. You need to be able to look pretty far away. And, and I, I think I'd actually brought this up, this whole scaling mm. with volume of space as being mm. a limiter for yeah. FSD. Like you, you can only make the BEV map so big yeah. because the compute grows as the map gets bigger. So if there are aspects of the BEV map, like maybe you can't fit this thing that you care about, distant crossing objects, for instance, inside your BEV map, but you still want a representation for them. Well, now let's, you know, let's use an approach that doesn't scale with volume, but it scales with the number of objects that are in it. Got it. So this two-stage architecture, I mean, are we talking about um, first stage, let's say it's like a occupancy network, and the second stage is these, let's say, is an object-focused of um, uh Thing where they're just focusing on certain objects farther out to save compute space. So you get the occupancy network for things around you, but then 
the second stage is the objects that you think are important further out. You're just focused on those objects without having to scale, right, this occupancy network in all yeah. directions. Yeah, so I would say that the two-stage thing is probably they have a stage that's still scaling as mm. space. And, you know, they, they, and they've added another stage of evaluation, this stuff, which is specifically focused on objects and their movements. It, they specifically call this as a kinematics thing. So, you know, if you're trying to evaluate if the, if the relative velocity or if the, if the velocities of distant objects are going to affect you, uh, you know, then. I don't know. A good example. Once again, this this screams to me like it's a highway application, right? Where because where you want to look pretty far, like you're merging. You know, you're driving on the freeway. We've all had. I mean, if you drive autopilot, you get that situation where you're driving and you're in the rightmost lane, and there's a big truck merging, right? And as a human, you're like you would move over, right? Autopilot has to predict what that how that that truck's velocity along its path and whether it's going to intersect right and 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 realize oh i'm going to be in that space i need to either slow down or to be smooth right or maybe i want to move over a lane that's a that's a prediction of a distant of a distant crossing object right it's a velocity prediction but a lot of times in these situations where you're on the highway you're going down the thing the the fsd you know occupancy grid or the bev map it might not reach far enough out to include that truck, right? So right now they've got this blind spot where there are these distant objects that you want to be considering when you make your decisions right now about what you're going to do, um, but it's too expensive to just brute force expand the FSD map so that it's big enough that it can reach out a half mile to where that truck is. You can see it really clearly as a human being, and you know it's going to cross your path because you can see where the stuff is going. But FSD can't consider it in that basic mechanism. So they've got this other thing that they that they that they're layering on that can basically, you know, it doesn't require it to fit inside the FSD, the Bev map or whatever. It can reach out to that object and make an estimate based on it, even if it's outside the grid. Got it. Actually, let's do one more. This seems kind of important. The last. Uh release note update says improved geometry error of ego rele relevant lanes by 34% and crossing lanes by 21% with a full vector lanes neural network update. Information bottlenecks in this network architecture were eliminated by increasing the size of the PERD camera feature extractors, video, video modules, internals of the auto regressive decoder, and by adding a hard attention mechanism, which greatly improved the fine position of lanes. Okay. So, I mean, it seems like they made a, a update to the vector lanes neural network, improved this accuracy, um, and then through multiple means, you know, they they achieved that. I mean, are, are there any notable kind of things here that you're noticing? Uh, no, it's, uh, well, it's interesting that they had a bottleneck at the connection between the camera networks and the, so that, you know, they made the feature descriptions uh, that coming out of the per camera networks bigger, or rather the feature that ingests it into the BEV network or the occupancy network, they made it bigger so that it could ingest more features per camera. Yeah. It's, I mean, it sounds like they did a number of optimizations and fairly straightforward improvements to, uh, the, uh, to the information that the, uh, that the vector lanes neural network got from the rest of the system. And then they got this numerical improvement in performance of 34% for Good. ego lanes and 21%. Yeah. It's pretty straightforward. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's just a, it feels like another just illustration that 
Tesla is doing anything and everything they can to improve their perception of, you know, and to create this 3D model that they're using to, you know, navigate um, the world through driving. Um, yeah, so I'll just wrap up here. Um, yeah, thanks for sharing all of this. I mean, sometimes I feel after, oftentimes I feel after talking with you, I just uh, get a better understanding of um, what's going on technically, especially under the hood. Um, it's interesting to me that um, FSD is pushing ahead and compared to where it was last year when we drove it in the summer, um, when we met up, compared to now, mm. it's just mind-blowing, the improvements. And it's so it's so interesting. Mm. To, you juxtapose that to a lot of the perception of skeptics and people who aren't following. They just don't think Tesla's mm. doing anything. They think it's just completely vaporware. Whereas Tesla is really heads down, I think, doing the right thing, improving. And it's not just one thing that it's a multitude multitude of things you need to improve to, to get this right, but they're really aggressively uh, pushing forward and it's uh, it's super impressive. I mean, yeah, what are your kind of last thoughts with all this? It, yeah, I'm, I'm happy with the progress. I'm glad to see that they're still moving. I, the, the biggest fear, you know, uh, and as long as we, as long as this doesn't happen, eventually we get there. As long as you don't hit a local minimum whatever that you can't escape like you hit a wall and stop making progress you will eventually get there like yeah. we don't have a really good real world understanding of exactly how hard driving is because we don't have an existence proof in, in a machine of something that can drive where you can point at it and you can say well this is how hard the problem is yeah. it's this hard because this machine can do it because we don't actually know in those kinds of terms how hard the problem is uh you know it's you can be very uncomfortable about whether you're, you're or not you're going to get there but you know one simple fact is true like if, if you continue to make good progress eventually you're going to get there however hard it is you're going to get there and the yeah. progress is exponential i mean it doesn't feel exponential but yeah. progress is exponential like they're not they're describing all of these improvements as percentages against the previous version and you know that's lot that's exponential improvement like if you constantly make you know same scale percentage wise improvements on your previous version you're improving exponentially over time. And that means yeah. even if the problem is, you know, if the problem is, uh, you know, uh, exponentially harder than you think it is, but your improvement is at an exponential rate, then the then the amount of time it takes you to solve the problem is only linearly larger. It's not exponentially larger. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm, so sure. it's the difference between, you know, it taking a year or two years to get there. It's not the difference between taking a year or a hundred years to get there, right? And so that's very... Um, encouraging to me yeah. to, to see that they continue to make exponential progress against this problem. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, good stuff. Um, right now I'm going to uh, head out to Badlands National Park. Have you been there to Badlands before? Yes, yeah. uh, we did. Uh, you know, it's funny. When we went, it was mm -hmm. early enough that the supercharger network was was. I, re I remember Badlands was, it was the first place where we, you know, that we took a trip in, in our car and we looked at it and we're like, there's no supercharger there, <laughs> which uh, yeah. means we need to, you know, have enough charge in the car to get out there, go around the park and then come back to where we are because, yeah, yeah. you know, there was no, there's, there's no, there wasn't anything on the other side of it that we yeah. could, I don't think that's true anymore. Yeah. But I, I remember <laughs> this because we were really concerned about it. We'd never had to do that thing before. And then we went out to Badlands and we drove all the way around. You know, we charged the car to 100%, drove out to Badlands, 
we met other people who had Teslas that were also there, you know, so, and then, and then we drove back and we ended up having like 40% charge left over. Like I was really (laughs) impressed that the car did so much better than my work than my expectations were. I think that was the last time I worried about range actually. Uh, That was probably 20, 2017. Yeah. It was fun. It's super pretty. Yeah, yeah, so no, I'm, yeah, I'm impressed. I, I don't think I've ever been to South Dakota before this trip, and it's just been awesome. Um, yeah, it's been fun. And then we're headed to Colorado, down to Colorado, spending a few weeks down there, at the Rocky Mountain National Park and other places, so it should be fun. Yeah. Cool. Awesome, James. Uh, thanks for uh, ch- uh, taking the time to chat. Um, I appreciate it for sure. I'm sure a, a lot of other people also um, will appreciate it. So have a great day, and we'll talk to you again. Take care. It was nice seeing you again. All right, bye.